Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Soul food is a southern staple with a heavy history. During the transatlantic slave trade, enslaved Africans had to create meals from the few rations they were given. What started as a means for survival has flourished into the delicious meals we now know as soul food. The DeKalb History Center is hosting its Black History Month celebration with an event called Soul Food in DeKalb, a tasty history. Later this hour, Summer Evans speaks with two of the presenters— Chef Asada Reed and culinary historian Akila McConnell. First, there's always cause for celebration when the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater returns to Atlanta, and this year there's added excitement. Robert Battle is celebrating 10 years as artistic director of the company. We like to think of Atlanta as second home to the Ailey dancers since they've been performing here over the past 46 years, and they return to the fabulous Fox Theater February 10th through 13th. Robert Battle joins me now via Zoom. Congratulations on your 10th anniversary, and welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much. You know, I can just remember us talking when I first started over 10 years ago, and here we are. Oh, my goodness, Robert. I'm flattered that you remember because I was feeling sentimental seeing you and hearing Judith Jamison talk about what an astonishing dancer and choreographer you were, and you were very shy at that moment, at least about that, though it has been a decade for you as artistic director. Your association with Ailey began in 1999. Yes. Which of your works will be performed in Atlanta as part of the 10th anniversary program? Well, a couple of them I have to mention when I'm thinking about 
when I started, you know, with the second company invited there by then Sylvia Waters. And one of the pieces that she put into the second company repertory at that time was a solo called Takadimi, which became a signature of mine in a way. It's wonderfully infectious and it's over before you know it, but people just seem to love it. And so that's one of the works that we'll be doing. So that has history to it. Also a work called Mass that I created on the Juilliard School. You know, I'm a Juilliard grad, 1994, but I made this dance in I believe 2005 for Juilliard students, but the company is thrilling in it. You know, as a kid, I sang in the church choir. And so this dance in a way is like a kind of choir, you know, they have on robes and it's very abstract and very interesting and powerful, I believe. And I have to mention a work that I choreographed called Ella. Yes. Yeah. Of course, a tribute to the incomparable Ella Fitzgerald and especially to her scat singing, which is bar nut. I mean, it's incredible. My mother introduced me to her singing, Sarah Vaughn singing. Uh, I'm also a solo will be performed called Inside that I created many years ago. And that is the music of Nina Simone. I think, you know, the variety of works of mine made over, you know, maybe a couple of decades, I think really represent all of my interests of wanting to be a singer, of martial arts, of all kinds of growing up in the church. I mean, it's all, I think, represented in the works that we'll be doing at the Fox when we come to Atlanta. You are only the third artistic director of the company, Mr. Ailey himself, followed by his muse, Judith Jamison, and her appointment of you. Robert, how did you feel about succeeding these legends when you began your tenure? Scared. <laughs> <laughs> Easy to understand. You know, it's so funny because when I think back, and I'm, I'm finding that I'm more open to say that now, and it possibly is because of the pandemic of having, in some ways, even if it is in the sort of the proximity is different, but I think we all feel like we've had a near-death experience, you know, in, in the way that this pandemic has been devastating for so many people who's lost so much. And for us being off the road and, and not able to do what it is that we are, I believe, preordained to do, which is bring people together and perform for people and, and all of that, that uh, there are certain things that I say now I probably wouldn't say, you know, especially when I, <laughs> you know, I wanted to say I'm confident, I, you know, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I, but no, part of me was scared because I was very much and still am aware of the legends of, you know, Judith Jamison, Alvin Ailey. I mean, really? I still felt like this kid from Miami growing up in Liberty City. And now I'm at the helm of this company and everybody's looking at me and I'm going, look at them. <laughs> <You know>? So, <laughs> so yes, it was scary, but it was also, I had Judith Jamison who would text me almost daily in the beginning um, to say that I chose you because of your singular voice. You have everything you need. That's why I chose you. You are the one to move the company forward. And so she kept 
sort of drilling that into me. And I started to believe her around year 10. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ailey is also celebrating the 50th anniversary of the solo performance Cry. Yes which was originally performed by Miss Jemison. What can you tell us about this piece? Well, Cry, I mean, it's a brilliant word. I remember watching it on videotape. For you young watchers, Google it. <laughs> uh, VHS. And I remember because, um, you know, I'd never seen the company at that time, but there was this wonderful footage of it, not of Judith Jemison dancing it, that was Deborah Manning, a uh, former company member, performing it on this particular video. But Judith Jamison was talking about it, and she was talking about it being a tribute, uh, a gift for Alvin Ailey's mother. She was talking about the dance, and she was saying that the journey is like you're in a queen in Africa being brought over on a slave ship and forced into servitude. But ultimately, the last, it's in three parts, but the last song is right on, Be Free. So it had to do with the tenacity of the human spirit, but it is tributed in every program to black women everywhere, especially our mothers. And so it has such weight and such resonance, such a story about survival, but also thinking about women and women's suffrage and black women and all of the lashes and and all of the trials and tribulations, you know, the single mom, you know, taking care of Alvin Ailey and making sure uh, that his curiosity was nurtured that made him into uh, this living legacy that we see today, even though he's been dead since 1989, he lives on. And so I think Cry embodies all of that in terms of strength and possibility. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Robert Battle, Artistic Director of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. Again, thinking back on your decade, the past 10 years have been eventful in our collective history. Barack Obama was elected to his second term as president when you began. And the past two years have seen a global reckoning with racial tragedy and social justice. The last time Ailey was in Atlanta at the Fabulous Fox was in February of 2020. We were lucky mm. that the Ailey dancers could perform here just before the world shut down. Yes. Robert. One of the works on that program that will always be with me was Donald Byrd's piece about the Tulsa Race Massacre. Yeah. I was shocked that I had never read about the tragedy in any American history textbook. And I remember telling that to you both during our interview. <laughs> Would you talk about the role of your company as storyteller, as filling in the gaps in our history. Yes, you bring up a great and timely subject as we see now books being taken, you know, away from the curriculum, books that have to do 
with our survival, with, with our human consciousness and awareness of these tragedies that hopefully we don't repeat them. So I think it's very important that ALE play a role in making sure that those stories are being told. And so you mentioned that wonderful work that Donald Byrd did about the Tulsa massacre. And I had never heard about it, you know? And, and so me growing up in Liberty City, uh, in Miami, going to schools that were, were you know, black, <laughs> that I'd never heard that story. And it's so important and so relevant. And so we try to make sure, I try to make sure that I balance the repertory with works like that, but some works that are for mere entertainment, but works too, as Alvin said it best, I mean, Alvin Ailey was brilliant with words. And he said, what he is trying to do is hold a mirror to society so that ultimately people could see how beautiful they are. But I think sometimes to get to that beauty, you have to see some of the ugly truths. And dance has a way of being able to express those truths in a way that people can hear. You know, I always say where language falters, dance excels because of its abstraction. By the time you know what it's about, you're so deep into it that it's, it's sort of grabbed you and gripped you. And what I love is that people may see a work about the Tulsa massacre and now because of Google and all the other things, they, they, it makes them go and look it up, you know, and see what it was all about and, and kind of educate themselves. So we, we play, I think, a really important role in that, especially a company that was started in 1958 on the cusp of the civil rights movement. Yes. In fact, in our last conversation, you said Alvin Ailey was the living embodiment of Black Lives Matter before it was even put together as an organization. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. He, 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 he demonstrated that, which I think is so important. In our last conversation, which was in 2021, after the documentary Ailey premiered at Sundance, mm. it's now streaming on PBS and Hulu, and there's Oscar buzz mm -hmm. for those who haven't seen the film how does it pull back the curtain to reveal alvin alias a full human being not just a dance legend yes i think that jamila wignot who directed it did a brilliant job and with such sensitivity because Alvin Ailey was very private. You know, one of the things that she said in an interview that we did together, she said, you know, the thought process of how much of a person, a genius, a legend like Alvin Ailey, how much do they owe us of their personal life when they're putting it on the stage, when they're telling you what they want you to know. But in a sense, to get back to your question, the idea of understanding that he struggled, I think is wonderful because sometimes as people become legends, as they pass on, we sort of, sort of, you know, we kind of jump over in our ways of looking at them, of expressing their success. We sort of like 
kind of skip over the parts that were difficult, you know, that they just sort of arrived there. And I think of that when I think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., this notion that he was just fearless. It kind of, in a way, takes away from the person's humanity. And I think for young people, it makes them think that it's not achievable because maybe they suffer from fear and anxiety or grappling with their own personal issues around so many things, mental health, all of those things that a person like Alvin Ailey dealt with. But through it all, he was able to manifest his genius and leave us with messages of hope through his masterpiece, Revelations. And so in a way, the Ailey documentary is a revelation in the fact that, wow, he carried all of that, but he was still able to transcend it and make visible the truths of what we needed to hear. And still, to this day, it still resonates. So I think it, it, the, the film does a wonderful job of not just being storm and drong and not just being negative and all of that, but really showing that he was a person who struggled, but he was a genius. And it, I love the moment where he says, not all of my works are political, but I'm a black man living in this and I can't deny that. Mm. I feel that very much so. During Black History Month, a virtual school time performance will be made available to Atlanta public and private schools. Mm -hmm. I take it revelations will be included in that? We thought we'd give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think that might motivate kids. Are there other works in, it, in that film? Yes, one of them is Blue Sweet. Blue Sweet was the first work that Alvin Ailey really created in that wonderful, famous performance in 1958 at the Y. And in a way, if you think of Blue Sweet, you could almost think of them together. So Blue Sweet and Revelations. Revelations, of course, is sort of like going to church on Sunday morning, right? Blue Sweet was what happened Saturday night. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, these characters at a barrel house, you know, sort of everything that goes on there, the flirtation, you know, some of the fighting, some of the delights of a Saturday night of trying to blow off some steam and just come together. And then they go to church on Sunday morning to <laughs> atone for Saturday so, but Blue Sweet is wonderful. It's, it's, it's really Shakespearean work, in my opinion. You know, the first thing that you hear in the beginning, well, first you hear, you know, of course, blues, Good Morning Blues, this wonderful blues song. And then you hear this the sound of a train whistle. And the idea of what the train represents is is almost tragic, right? These people who can't get out of their circumstance, they can't get on that train. They are stuck in the place they're in. Then he goes through those wonderful vignettes in the dance that kind of echo that. Then he takes you to this point where it becomes fun, like they're just in a jip joint and everybody's dancing and, and flirting and there are funny moments and all of this. 
And then the Good Morning Blues comes back again. And this time there is more angst. I must think about it like the pandemic, you know, just when we think we're gonna get on that train, right? And get back to normal, another variant, another thing happens, you can't escape. And so the frustration happens. And at the very end, you hear the train again. And as the curtain goes down, nobody leaves. You know, so it's, it's really, I think he elevates the storytelling in dance to a kind of Shakespearean feat, if you will. It, it's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Can't say enough about it. Artistic Director Robert Battle of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. They'll be in Atlanta at the Fox Theater tomorrow through the 13th for five performances. Additionally, that wonderful documentary on Alvin Ailey, which aired as part of American Masters on PBS, is available for streaming on wabe.org via PBS Passport. In a moment, City Lights producer Summer Evans gets a soul food history lesson. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. Great to have you along. Soul food is a southern staple with a heavy history. During the transatlantic slave trade, enslaved Africans had to create meals from the few rations they were given. What started as a means for survival has flourished into the delicious meals we now know as soul food. The DeKalb History Center is hosting its annual Black History Month celebration with an event called Soul Food in DeKalb, a tasty history. The event is to be held both in person and virtually tomorrow, February 10th. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with two of the presenters via Zoom ahead of the event, Chef Asada Reed and culinary historian Akila McConnell. Summer began by asking Chef Asada what soul food means to her. 
I would describe soul food as food that speaks to your soul. I know that we have a legacy in the African-American community of soul food, but I think most people who have a food culture have their own soul foods. They may call it comfort food or traditional cooking. Our soul food is derived from our African legacy. So it reflects some of the things that have been a part of our culture for centuries, like uh, black eyed peas, greens, grilled meats and things of that nature. I think that's a wonderful definition, but to add to that, I also think that soul food is about reclaiming roots. Originally, when the word soul food came about, that was in the 60s, during this time period of civil rights movement and social upheaval. And as part of that, it was African-Americans reclaiming the roots of African cuisines and saying, hey, this is this is what we eat and what we eat is wonderful and it matters. And I'm glad you said that, Akilah, because soul food has garnered a negative reputation for being unhealthy, but at its roots, it's agricultural. It is the foods that we grew in addition to whatever was given to the enslaved. It is what we hunted. It is what we cultivated from seeds that were braided into our hair as we were brought over here. Um, so our foods are inherently healthy because they are inherently plant-based and they've changed over the years, largely due to the industrialization of the agricultural system and just the access to the amount of food. But soul food is what fed the civil rights movement. Um, it's something that we should be proud of and something that we should reclaim. And I'm really excited about how farmers and chefs and cookbook authors and documentarians are not only reclaiming soul food, but getting down to its roots and celebrating it. Mm -hmm. And Akila, you are a culinary historian. Can you just give us a brief overview of this complicated history of how soul food came to be here in America? Soul food, the roots of it comes from the food that was cooked in Africa. In the 1500s, West Africans were known for incredible cuisine. I mean, that was something that, you know, if you read historical books, Europeans would go and they would talk about how well-fed they were um, in West Africa. And that food made its way over here, those food traditions, and intermingled with the indigenous cuisine here, as well as with European culture. But when you think of something like okra, for example, you know, okra is a West African vegetable. You know, collards, collards and greens were not eaten by Europeans. I mean, the Europeans did not believe that eating greens was good for the mind. Actually, they believed that eating greens would make you depressed. And it was the Africans who taught the Europeans how to eat greens. And now, I mean, today we all know that eating greens is such an important part of your daily diet. So that history of soul food very much has its history in enslavement, but it also is in the way in the, which these three different cultures, the indigenous cultures, the European cultures, and the West African cultures intermingled here in the South. And if I could piggyback on that for just a minute, if you look at some of the most elevated cooking in America, um, thinking back to former slaves, Hercules and, and James Jennings, who were um, owned by George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, these were cooks who were sent overseas sometimes to learn 
French cuisine and returned to the United States and cooked in the White House, some of the top catering houses that existed were helmed by African-Americans. So although we have moved away, well, there was a sort of a class issue of being in the kitchen. And as we became more upwardly mobile, we didn't want to have those hospitality jobs. But at one time, African-Americans were American cuisine. It filtered through our hands. We were the ones preparing it. Um, so when you think about soul food, it really can expand and, and encompass the story of food in America. And I always think of, I mean, James Hemming is, I mean, it's such an excellent example of that because um, you know, he was Thomas Jefferson's um, enslaved uh, cook. And you know, Jefferson paid for him to be trained in France. And Hemings learned French techniques, including two dishes that he brought back over to the United States. One was pommes frites, and the second was um, what they at the time called macaroni au gratin. And of course, these were dishes that Hemings um, you know, served at the White House, became hot cuisine here in the United States. And today, that's macaroni and cheese and French fries. I mean, can you imagine a world in which we don't get to eat macaroni and cheese and French fries? It would be terrible. I would have a really hard time with that. And what is more American than either French fries or mac and cheese? And to tie it back to soul food in, in these current times, in many African-American gatherings, the mac and cheese is the star of the show. In fact, people will ask who made the mac and cheese before they eat the soup. <laughs> it is hotly debated. Shout out to my sister-in-law, Kalila, because hers reigns supreme. <laughs> I don't know. I might have to fight you for that hey, place. We can have a cook off. I'm here for it. <laughs> oh man, that's the truth. Every barbecue, you have to have the mac and cheese. Like that, that is the essential part of any barbecue or a good meal together, um, especially here in the South. And, yeah. and I think in many of our, our gatherings, I mean, it'll show up at Easter. It's going to show up at Christmas. It's going to show up at Thanksgiving. When you ask your kid, you know, it's your birthday. What do you want? They're going to call on the mac and cheese. It's sacred. <laughs> it is sacred. Yes. <laughs> going back to what you said about household food touches the soul. What would you guys say are your favorite dishes that touch each of your heart and soul when you eat it? I am going to uh, say my mother's oxtails because I have gone through many phases in life. I have been a vegetarian. I have gone away to college. And when I would come home, I would say, mom, can you make me some oxtails to this day, to this day? And I'm very well and grown with children of my own. If my mother's making oxtails, I'm making an appearance. Mm. And Akila? I tell people that I became a culinary historian because of my grandmother. And um, my grandmother, you know, she really influenced me as a child. She um, only had an eighth grade education. She was married very young. She was a phenomenal cook. And she always used to kind of like think, oh, well, I haven't done a lot in my life because, you know, she didn't have an education. She never had a job, that sort of thing. And I was like, you've done amazing things. So um, I can't pick one thing, but honestly, anything that she cooked, I think of her so fondly. And I, there's so many times that I'm just eating constant food and I see something and I'm like, oh, my grandmother made that. It's true that the relationships we have really do shape us as an adult. I, I remember my grandmother, 
she's still an amazing cook. She made this pound cake over Christmas and it was a stopper. <laughs> like people stopped talking. It was that good. But I remember uh, her chicken perlau, which I now know is related to various other rice dishes that again, come to us through the diaspora and deciding that I wanted to go to culinary school. I remember my aunt Mildred telling me how to fry chicken by listening to it. She said, it'll tell you when it's done. She taught me how to make dumplings and, and she was a huge influence on me understanding the sensual nature of food and how it can soothe your soul. It can make you happy. It can bring you comfort and solace. And people always say, don't eat your feelings. And I'm like, baby, you must not have had soul food. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, it's so, it's so, I mean, I feel like you and I must've been raised in a similar way because that's how I learned to cook. I did not learn how to cook by reading recipe books. Uh, you know, my grandmother makes or made the most amazing dumplings. Like the this the wrapper on them was so thin that you could just see through them. And she taught me that by hand. I didn't watch any YouTube videos or anything like that. And that is historically for thousands and tens of thousands of years how people learn to cook. There were no YouTube videos. There were no you know, food bloggers, there were no cookbooks. We learned at the hands of our mothers and our grandmothers and being able to honor their legacy is why I love being a culinary historian because it's in covering those stories about those women. You know, when I teach children and adults, either virtual or in-person uh, cooking classes, they do get the recipe after the cooking session because I'm showing people how to cook intuitively. And I feel like that is something I've inherited. I feel like it really increases people's comfortability in the kitchen, it boosts their confidence and it will encourage them to cook. Um, so I love, especially the young folks, the teenagers and the kids, uh, just teaching them how to cook without a recipe, um, learning like how we did from our elders. Mm. That's so essential because for, for someone like me who is not a natural cook in the kitchen, the recipe book, like I have to have it right next to me. And it makes me a little bit more of a nervous cook from just not having that intuition. Yeah, it causes my, mom, my mom wasn't much of a cook and uh, she won't hate me for saying this on it. <laughs> she knows it. <laughs> we cook, we ate to live, not we didn't live to eat. But that is good that you're teaching younger generations, you know, just how to do it by taste and sound. That's very Well, sad. and you know, I always... I always think to myself, you know, there's there's always these uh, like home ec classes and they just need to bring some grandmas in who are amazing cooks and, and you just watch them and you learn. And that's honestly the reason that we watch cooking shows. I mean, nowadays cooking shows are so popular and it's because when you're watching, you're learning how to do it. Um, somebody can tell you, oh, you know, cook that fried chicken until it's crispy, but you need to know, oh, this is what it looks like when it's crispy. Absolutely. And I think as a health educator, I have an ulterior motive behind this. I know that being unable to cook has huge implications on health outcomes down the line. Uh, if you come from a community or an area that is disadvantaged in any way, you're more likely to be at risk for certain um, diseases that are diet related, diabetes, obesity, various cancers, hypertension, all kinds of cardiovascular disease. And we know that lifestyle change is probably the most impactful way to prevent or reverse these conditions. Well, that lifestyle change is centered around diet and exercise. If you don't know how to cook, you have a handicap. 
You know, and the funny part about it is that this is actually the story for all of history. What's really interesting that might surprise both of you, or maybe it won't surprise you, is that up to the Civil War, who had been doing all of the cooking in the South? It was Black women. And so after the Civil War ended, Black women were freed and they could start getting their own jobs. So all of a sudden, there is a huge issue in the South. And you actually see all these newspaper articles, all these recipe books where people are saying, what are white women going to do? White women don't know how to cook. And literally, I mean, I, I swear to you, I am not making this up. There is a recipe book that was specifically written to teach white women how to cook. And it includes things like how to make toast, how to peel a banana, because their entire life, they had never cooked. Um, and so, you know, when you hear about, you know, when I hear Asita saying, you know, that, you know, it's important to teach people how to cook, this is not just the story of today. This is a story that has been going on for hundreds of years. And it, again, goes to show the importance of these cooks in the kitchen, that literally this is how, how we eat, how our country is nourished culinary historian Akila McConnell and chef Asada Reed, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. Coming up, Chef Reed shares her secrets for taking Southern soul food staples, making them her own, and making them vegetarian. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. Thank you for being here. If you are just joining us, we've been listening to culinary historian Akila McConnell and Chef Sauter Reed share soul food secrets with City Lights producer Summer Evans. Here, Chef Reed talks about the ease of making soul food vegetarian. I think a lot of people on their health journeys look to remove processed foods, red meats from their diet. So there's always a demand for vegetarianizing beloved foods. And some of the easiest ones are honestly soul food because it it is the food of resilience. It was never meat heavy. That is a misnomer. Um, Meat is expensive. Chickens are more valuable alive laying eggs than they are dead on the table. They can provide protein every single day if you keep them alive. But once you kill it and fry it, that's a goner. So old hens were used, old chickens were used, but I digress. Um, the, The bigger point is that things like beans and grains and greens were seasoned with bits and pieces of meat. That's where the neck bone would go in. That's where the ham hocks would go in. That's where the smoked turkey neck or the smoked turkey wing would go in. And that is very easy to remove when you understand what those things bring to the table. Those smoked meats bring umami. They bring a bit of fat. And they bring saltiness and they bring smoke. So I can make a pot of greens and substitute that by using smoked paprika, a bit of healthier oils, like an olive oil to give you that mouthfeel of the fatty presence. 
And umami can come from a number of things, a wide range of things. You could have a couple of shiitake mushrooms in there that you pull out after the fact or use amino acids to get that umami flavor. Same thing with black eyed peas. They're so earthy and sweet on their own that a lot of time they're masked when you add a lot of smoky, meaty flavors to it. I say pull that out. And one of my signature dishes is actually a garlic and rosemary black eyed pea dish. It's very simple, it's very light, it's very fresh. And those two dishes alone, the collard greens and the black eyed peas, I have converted people who swear they don't like greens and peas. I actually believe people who say they don't like soul food haven't had it properly done. They've had a mass production of it or somebody's ripoff of it, but it, soul food takes time. You cannot rush it. And that's how the flavors are developed. You put on a pot of greens before Sunday school and you eat it after the preacher done preached his third sermon. That's how you time that. How long do you cook your greens? And so preacher done preached his third sermon. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Like time is different when you're making soul food. Everything is different that way. Right. It's not the same as those canned collard greens that you just plop into. <laughs> yeah. No, not. And the texture is completely different. That's the other thing. If something like greens, which is very nutritious, yet very fibrous, for something like that, for your body to even access all the nutrients that are in those greens, they have to be stewed. And there's even wisdom in pairing things like chow chow or hot pepper sauce with those greens because anything pepper-based is high in vitamin C and it allows your body to absorb the nutrients of those greens even better. And of course, nothing goes to waste because the liquid that the greens is cooked in, that pot liquor for centuries has been baby's first food. You mash some cornbread in it, which is a whole grain, by the way. You mash some cornbread in with that pot liquor and you make a mush that is fed to babies, but it's also fed to the sick because it's very nutrient dense, yet it's easy to digest. There's wisdom in soul food. It's not haphazard. It's not slapdash. Mm -hmm. Wow. And um, you are also the founder and president of the nonprofit Feed the People Co. What inspired you to create this organization? Food disparities and hunger. Um, I live in the West End, which is a community that is under gentrification. Uh, there's stark poverty as in um, unhoused people living in open places. And there is stark affluence as in historical homes being renovated to their former glory. Um, I needed to feed those people. So uh, we had a small community bodega. Uh, the owner did, had beans, he had bags and bags of dried beans. No one knows why and I don't ask questions. He would give us beans. I would make soup. I'd make sure he got his cut because he likes soup. And my husband and I and my oldest son would ride around the community, find the places where people were hiding <laughs> and we'd feed them. And my husband made an interesting remark, regardless of what your ministry is or what your work is, if you cannot see those results yourself, then it's kind of ineffective. So now we have this phrase that's like, where's the soup? Where's the proof of what you're doing? Where is the, the, the hands, the boots on the ground? Where's the soup? Um, but that's how Feed the People got started, literally out of my kitchen, feeding people. It's a, it's a literal name. <laughs> that's amazing. And when did it get started? Uh, this was about four years ago. And since then, I've been able to partner on other items and like working with the Hand, Heart and Soul Project to do cooking classes for children, to help serve uh, Clayton County, to teach families how to feed young children 
in different organizations that just work in the community around food access and food disparities. My goal is to improve access and affordability to people. I'm starting small, but you know, one day I'll be huge. Hey, no, that <laughs> has a domino effect with what you're doing. That's really awesome. Hopefully, yeah. Um, Akila, you are the founder and owner of the Unexpected Atlanta and Unexpected Virtual Tours. Uh, when I was looking on the website, you offer some really amazing tours around Atlanta, both from places that people might be familiar with and also those unexpected <laughs> places, for, especially for those who love history and food. How did you come up with the idea for these walking tours? So I freaked out when I was 30 years old and I decided I hated my job as an attorney. And uh, so my husband and I, we decided to travel around the world for a while. And I was taking walking tours all around the world and learning about history and uh, learning about food history. And I kept thinking to myself, why doesn't this exist here in my own city of Atlanta, this place that I love that has such an incredible history and culture? And Atlanta truly did change the world. And I kept thinking to myself, man, I wish somebody would start this. And one day my husband turned to me and he was like, why don't you start it? I was like, oh, hey, that's a good idea. And so we really focus on telling the story of the neighborhoods and the communities that need to be told. Um, we're really going to places where you wouldn't often go to. Um, and that allows us to support those uh, vendors and restaurant owners who often don't get a ton of foot traffic and uh, we're able to uh, you know, financially contribute to them. Um, as well as to the neighborhoods, we support all of our neighborhoods with a portion of our proceeds going directly to neighborhood and community organizations. Um, and on the virtual tour side, that was actually a pandemic pivot um, that has grown hugely. And it is wonderful because we now have the ability to share this history that before we could only share to people with people who were in Atlanta. And now we can share it with people nationwide. Mm, yes. And I'm glad that you have these tours because when I have friends or family that are out of state and they're like, okay, I'm coming to Atlanta, what should I do? It's usually like, yes, we have amazing museums, <laughs> exhibitions, but I always tell them like, you have to try the food, like the food yeah. in Atlanta. It's great that you have these tours for that very reason. Yeah. And it's always fun because um, we do a lot in our tours really to combat misperceptions of soul food because we get people all the time who come and they say, oh, I don't understand what is soul food or I thought soul food is unhealthy. And then we show them what soul food is um, and they come away with a newfound appreciation. Definitely. For those who are going to be attending this DeKalb History Center event in person, it will be catered by Soul Food Meal, prepared by Phenomenal Foods by Chef Holly, and a panel discussion afterwards. So I know this is going to be a hard question to ask, but do either of you have restaurant recommendations that are soul food focused here in Atlanta that you would recommend to our audience? Absolutely. I can't give it all away because that's <laughs> right. part of my presentation, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommend two restaurants that are very different. One is Twisted Soul, yeah. helmed by Chef Deborah Van Treese. Uh, she's done the elevated soul food path. So when you go in there, the shrimp and grits are not the shrimp and get grits you get 
just anywhere. It's going to be next level. It's the attention to detail. It's the quality of the ingredients. It's the ambiance. It's the bartenders. It's everything. Go have an, ex an exclusive soul food experience there. But I also want to recommend a very small and relatively unknown place that is IndyCab. It is Spring Greens mm. at Community Cafe, which is right next to a mosque on Glenwood Road inside the perimeter near the East Lake community. It is owned by a mother and son, and they are doing halal food from scratch cooking. There are no cans and the vegetables are pristine every single day. The fried snapper is to order. So it's fresh out of the fryer, the meatloaf, the rolls, just, I mean, you walk in, it smells like you walked into someone's house. The food is on point. So, I, I mean, you talk about soul food. I eat there and I feel better about that. <laughs> <laughs> it is Spring Greens at Community Cafe off of Glenwood and Fayetteville Road. You'll miss it if you blink. So slow down and go in and, and you're welcome. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Akila, do you have any recommendations? Um, so many. This is like trying to pick a favorite child. This is very, very, very <laughs> hard. That's why I said it's a hard question. <laughs> it's a hard question. I gotta say, though, I think one of the choices I always recommend to folks is Pascals. I think it is a culinary institution in the city, home of the civil rights movement. You know, it's where Dr. King ate, it's where John Lewis ate, it's where Andrew Young ate, uh, actually still eats. I've been in there and I've seen Ambassador Young eating, I've seen Jesse Jackson eating there. Um, and the food is just so good every time. I have never had a bad meal at Pascal. So to me, that is the place you have to eat at. But, you know, speaking of like made from scratch and just made with a lot of heart, I always love going to the municipal market in Sweet Auburn, which oh, yeah. is the Sweet Auburn Curb Market, also known as. And there's so many great restaurants in there. There's um, Afro Dish, which does Jamaican and African cuisine. There's um, a, a, new, a couple of new Cajun restaurants. Um, there's Misty's that does amazing New Orleans pralines and popcorn. But my pick for soul food there is Metro Deli. And Metro Deli, you know, in the yes. same way, they make it from scratch. It's just for folks. They wake up in the morning. Uh, they're, they're at like 5 30 a.m they don't have any cans they don't even own a can opener um they're, they're sitting back there chopping the greens the way greens should be chopped they make the whole banana pudding from scratch but my favorite thing there is their hoe cakes and that's their cornbread and they make it like the real traditional style and you got to try their falafel like you you would think falafel was brown for no. all the falafel you see <laughs> in the world. Mimi's falafel is green because it's got so many herbs in it in that hot sauce. She is truly gifted. And, you know, she's actually really funny. If you talked to her, I talked to her before and she was telling me, you know, she didn't intend even to cook soul food. She was intending, you know, when they came to Atlanta and they're Ethiopian, they were looking for a place to open up an Ethiopian restaurant. And then they found the soul food spot. And so Miss Mimi said, well, I'm going to learn how to cook soul food. And I asked her one time, I was like, well, how did you learn it? And she was like, oh, well, it's not all that different from, you know, Ethiopian, from West African cuisine. It was really easy. And I was like, yeah, yeah. you're right. It's that's where it is from. So 
And if anybody wants to really experience the bridge, have some Ethiopian food, have the gomen, have the tibs, go to an Ethiopian restaurant, order the food, and you'll be like, we eat this in America. Yeah, you do. It's just maybe spiced or seasoned a little different. This is our food. This is our food. Chef Asada Reed and culinary historian Akila McConnell speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. The DeKalb History Center's event, Soul Food in DeKalb, A Tasty History, is tomorrow, February 10th. You can join in person or online. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the Atlanta Contemporary Museum's new exhibition, This is America the unsettling contradictions in American identity. Plus, Atlanta artist and entrepreneur Kiana Upton shares details on her upcoming Greenhouse Cafe, Nourish Botanica. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.